Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Wilson. He's the executive director for the International Justice Mission here in Canada. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about violence. We talk about injustice and justice and law enforcement models and, and, and what collaborative casework is actually all about. We talk about how, how, do we, how does the uh, IJM, how, how do we together build a, a safe future that's going to last, that's going to be effective, that's going to have an impact? And, and what does it mean to have a responsibility towards others? And how can this affect what it means ultimately for us uh, as as humans let me uh, let me read you a quote from a book that we also talk about called the locust effect quote we have come to see with some urgency that criminal justice systems are indispensable for the poor and we know from history that it's possible to build them but we also know that building them is difficult costly dangerous and unlikely what we need therefore are bold projects of hope I'll end it there, close quote, bold projects of hope. That's from a book called The Locust Effect. We talk about that as well, and then the subtitle of the book is Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. Um, it, we, we, we cover a lot of ground, and we talk, too, about what, what what's the downside to sharing this world with others. Um, DavidPeckLive.com for more uh, interviews uh, there. Uh, we're well over 200 now. I've got a bunch of interviews I've just just recently done with uh, filmmakers from the Toronto International Film Festival. If you like a festival, if you'd like a copy of my book, Real Change is Incremental, you can get it there uh, online. And if you'd like to book me for your next event, please uh, connect with me through my website at davidpecklive.com. Coming up, Ed Wilson. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest uh, again here today, Ed Wilson, uh, who is IJM's uh, Executive Director. That's the International Justice Mission here in Canada. Uh, Ed Wilson is here with us today. Thanks, thanks for uh, your uh, your time today, Ed, and for 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 joining You're welcome, us. Welcome, David. Yeah, good to chat. We've 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 been trying to set this up for quite some time. Tell Glad we're finally able to talk. We are finally able to talk. Your first day back from holidays, I understand. So I'll go. I'll go easy. On that. You. I'm going. I'm going to go easy on you. How's that? 
Okay. <laughs> so I've got a whole long list of things to talk about, but I think I think a great place to start at is is why don't you just give us kind of the overview of what IJM actually is and what they do, and and I mean you know I could certainly read you know your vision and your mission statement off your website, uh, and for those of you who are listening and taking notes, it's IJM. Uh, and we'll have that up online as well. But tell us a little bit about the organization and, and, and what you're all about. Well, uh, as you mentioned, David, I'm the Executive Director of International Justice Mission Canada, and uh, we are part of a global organization that comprises six independent organizations based in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Germany, Netherlands, and Australia, who, who partner together to protect the poor from violence throughout the developing world. And in those locations, 17 different communities throughout Africa, Latin America, South and Southeast Asia, we partner with local authorities to rescue victims of violence. Uh, we also bring criminals to justice. We restore survivors and strengthen justice systems. And, and our vision is that through our partnership with local law enforcement, we will, for the sake of the poor who are typically defenseless, we will build a safe future that lasts. And so we are really looking at long-term transformation of justice systems within the developing world context. So that's what we do. Canada, as I mentioned, is, is, is a member of this partnership of organizations that functions under the uh, mission and vision of International Justice Mission with a shared vision, shared mission. And uh, it's very exciting to have this opportunity that I do to be a part of this, of this great movement that's growing throughout the world. I think what I've seen in the last 10, 15 years is a growing awareness on the part of those, as, those of us who live in the global north, if I can use that expression, mm -hmm. of our responsibility to uh, leverage the privileges and responsibilities that we have for the sake of the protection of the of the poor in the developing world. I'd love. I want to talk about that responsibility in, in a second, Ed, and and why not only why you feel it, but why you feel that we here in the global north have this almost this moral obligation to 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 look toward to look beyond ourselves. I guess is is a good is is maybe a good way to put it. Would you? Would you call IJM a development organization? We, uh, yeah, I think I think you could use that expression. We um, we typically uh, would refer to ourselves as a as a as a um, development organization. Um, we we try to avoid um, being categorized as a human rights organization oh, okay. because our, our focus is not so much on human rights, but uh, although that is uh, that is a knock-on effect of the work that we do, that the rights of individuals are are respected and protected. But uh, but we do work in the development sector. That's correct. So that's sort of how you differentiate differentiate yourself. Would you say from say uh, an Amnesty International? Um, they're they're primarily active with respect to human rights and so on, and and on behalf of individuals, you guys are more. Would you almost say more from a hmm, from a legal uh, perspective? You know, uh, going after uh, you know uh, slavery and and sex trafficking and so on. Is that is that kind of the distinction? We do our work from a law enforcement model. That is certainly correct, and and we. Uh, if I can just talk for a minute about our our, our methodology, mm -hmm. we we begin in a in a location 
by doing collaborative casework. And by collaborative, I mean we work in partnership with local authorities as individual cases of violent oppression of the poor are brought to our attention. Uh, we uh, work to bring the local law enforcement uh, systems uh, on site with us to advocate for um, proper, um, proper respectful treatment of the individuals who have who have been abused and and uh, and and suffered violence. Uh, we work we work through the courts in in the, in the country. Um, and, but in in that process of doing collaborative casework, we're able to develop a diagnosis mm -hmm. of where the local justice system is lacking in its effectiveness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, and then propose certain uh, improvements to the justice system, which are typically not. Uh, improvements to the law, because in most cases the laws are quite good and sound in and of themselves, but they they are not being enforced, and, or if they're being enforced mm -hmm. at all within the country context, they are not being enforced for the poor. I mean, one of the things that we find is in in the developing world context, quite often, most often, the rich are able to secure protection for themselves because they have the financial resources to pay for it. Right. Uh, they can pay for private security. But in a country where uh, law enforcement is under-resourced uh, or not a priority f uh, within a system that is struggling in so many other ways, the poor lack protection. Right. Uh, so, so we are then able, through the collaborative casework that we do, to, to develop a diagnosis of where the justice system needs to be strengthened. And it may be something um, as basic as the, uh, as, as children in the court system being given special treatment mm. out of regard for the, uh, the, the sensitivity of the issues that they have, that they're being processed in the court uh, so that children are not being re-traumatized by having to go through a trial process where they're re required again to uh, recite the details of the abuse that they suffered. So uh, something like developing child-sensitive procedures in courts. Uh, that you know, when I'm talking about developing a diagnosis, it may, it may be something as as simple as that. Or in a case like India, where bonded labor has been illegal since 1976, since the passage of the Bonded Labor Slavery Act in India, um, no processes were developed for recognizing that individuals were actually um, being treated as slaves and. Uh, needed to be their their mistreatment needed to be acknowledged in a legal sense, and some you know some process needed to be developed to uh, acknowledge their mistreatment and grant those individuals freedom from the the abuse that they were suffering. And so, we have collaborated with the government of India to develop a process uh, which involves the provision of these former bonded laborers with a release certificate to identify the fact that they are now free from the, the obligation under which they, mm. they labored and suffered for so long. So we develop this, this diagnosis. We, we implement uh, pr new procedures that will result in a strengthening of the justice system and perhaps even a uh, quite radical transformation of the justice system. Um, and then Given the passage of some time, we are able to step back from the work that we've done in partnership with with local authorities and move into a position of, of monitoring 
the, the gains that have been achieved over a period of time. So why, why do you personally feel this responsibility? Why does IJM feel a responsibility, or any development worker for that matter, to the global south, to the majority world, or the two-thirds world? I mean, uh, as, you know, as I sometimes will say, and others do too, you know, I, I don't know about you, Ed, but from time to time, because of the work I do, people will say, well, how come you're not concerned about the problems here in Canada? I mean, don't we have these issues here too? And, you know, why why there and not here, you know? And that that's, in my mind, a very cynical sort of approach. But but I'm always not only surprised by that, <laughs> but my initial reaction is usually one of kind of anger. But I'm, I'm learning to sort of, you know, footnote that more and more every day, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, um, certainly to, to respond to the... the question you raise, which which is often posed to us as well. Why you know, why are you focused on problems in the in the developing world? What you know, what about those who suffer injustice in our own country? Mm-hmm. It's true. There there are needs in our own environment as well. But relatively speaking, I I don't think anyone can argue with this statement I'm about to make is that relatively speaking, more resources are available to those who are in need in our country uh, and in the United States and Europe mm-hmm. uh, than would be the case in, in the global south. Um, but I think we also need to remember that it is not so long ago. It, I would say uh, if you look back into the 19th century, you would, you would be able to find situations, uh, even in North America, in some of our large cities, where, uh, where um, um, Violence was rampant, and mm-hmm. uh, the poor were subject to uh, oppression, and uh, and uh, with very few resources dedicated to their support. So, uh, so I think we should, while we do say that the needs are greater in the developing world, we should we shouldn't take that posture out of some sense of smugness that that mm-hmm. we are we are beyond the kinds of um, uh, violence and deprivation that the poor suffer from in the developing world. Uh, you also you, you also ask why you know what motivates me. Well, yeah, what motivates and and why the like I love the word responsibility. I mean, I I truly believe that, but I don't know that everyone does. And hmm. I and I and having just returned from Southeast Asia and Cambodia, I'm not sure people globally have that deep of a concern for others and yet maybe maybe i'm wrong about that but it's it doesn't seem to be playing out it seems to me in that way in the west but uh you know i interviewed somebody about volunteerism a couple of days ago and they had nothing but good things to say about people in the u.s and the west and how wonderful they are and how much time they give and so on so yeah i just i'm interested to know what what your thoughts are on that whole capital r responsibility notion well, for me, I think it's I mean, part of my personal story is that, that I grew up in an isolated community in northern Ontario where uh, even you know, 30, 40 years ago it was quite rare for someone to, to leave that community and venture out into the bigger world. Uh, I did, and I benefited from having teachers and mentors throughout my adolescent years who encouraged me to dream big. Right. And I think coming out of that uh, out of that that childhood and adolescent experience, I've I've gained a sense of responsibility to use the the privilege that I've enjoyed for the benefit of others. 
And and to be frank with you, my my worldview has been shaped by my faith in the Judeo-Christian God, who I understand to be the God of justice and the God of poor, uh, the God of the universe, a God who is active in all places and in all situations, even the most uh, the darkest and most discouraging situations. And and I think that you know that sense sense of being privileged myself coupled with the the world view that I've uh, that I've adopted it, it it imparts to me a sense of responsibility to use the, the gifts and abilities and capacities that I have for the benefit of others and and do you, Ed, can I can I ask you this blend of a question do you think that do you think so privilege great love it do you uh, leads towards responsibility do you think faith primarily leads towards a responsibility to others. Uh, and I, I guess my question sort of is, 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 is that a requirement? Is that a necessity? I don't think it's a requirement. I, I, think, um, I think it's part of, our, part of our humanness. And, of course, my perspective on what it means to be human uh, is shaped by my worldview. Right. But, but um, I think so, anyone who's in touch with our with our humanness, with, with what it means to be a human being, with what it means to be a member of the human race, mm-hmm. with with an understanding of 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 who we share the world with, um, how 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 much um, chance uh, or use whatever another word if you wish, destiny or providence right. plays into. Um, that you know the the decision of why you know why I was born in Canada of right. all places in the right. world, right? Uh, why you know why I was privileged to have people around me who encouraged me to to share my life with others, to share my gifts with others. I mean, this this these you know these are things that, irrespective of your worldview, I think anyone who is in touch with their humanness be motivated. To, to get these to to uh, to benefit others. Certainly, my worldview, my faith, has been an important part of, of of my journey. But I don't think that that's something that is intrinsic or exclusive to people of faith. I, I think it has more to do with uh, as much to do, maybe I would say, to do with just being aware of of um, responsibility that comes from sharing the planet with billions of other people. Well, I, I kind of often say, like, what's, what's, what is the downside to sharing the planet? What is the downside with, to, to bending towards grace and to generosity? But I think most, most, I think a lot of people, well, hey, I'm just busy trying to make my own ends meet here, folks. I've got my own. It's kind of like, if it's not in my backyard, I'm not really that interested, right? That's sometimes the sense that I get, and I'm always trying to fight against that. That's, that's, uh, that way of living is is foreign to me. I I, I don't understand it, and mm. uh, and I think one of the things that I have the opportunity to do is to encourage people to pay attention to their neighbors. It's good. Um, it's good. Just and and certainly that's part of the. I mean the 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 Christian way of life, the, the mm. body of teaching that comes of Christianity, Jesus teaching on. On uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, but uh, but um, I, you know, again, I think it's it's part of a part of the awareness of what it means to be human. What it means to be, uh, yeah. to be 
to share to share this space, this world, uh, for the time that we do with others. And uh, my life and the lives of people that I spend time with have been enriched by take, paying attention to the needs of those around them and not being afraid to to intervene. I mm, mm. today my wife came home from. Uh, 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 a run. I I made it home a little bit before she did, and she came in the the house and said, "You won't believe what just happened." And on the street just behind where our house is, uh, on her way home, she had noticed there were a couple people on bicycles who were uh, weaving their way down the street and interfering with traffic. And a driver took offense at these bicyclist behavior, mm. and stepped out of his car and began verbally and then physically threatening them. Oh okay. And yeah. and the, the bicyclist responded to the threat, and it looked really as if there was going to be a physical altercation right. in the middle of the street. And my wife intervened, and she said, you guys, stop it. Stop what you're doing. You're both acting, you're all acting like idiots. Now get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she could just have easily said, that's, None of my business. Right. I, you know, why right. would I? Why should I put myself at risk for the sake of others? But I think, I think that's the kind of behavior that results from pay, paying attention to where we live and accepting some responsibility for the general well-being of, of the communities that we are a part of. Well, I think I think in some ways, uh, where I'm starting to land is faith or no faith. Is that I think a starting point has to be that we we don't exist without others in a sense. Yeah. And so we don't know who we are without our wives and our husbands and our kids and our partners and our families and our friends. Uh, and, and I think we can easily extend that to, to those in our neighborhoods and beyond. So why wouldn't we is the better question, yeah. <laughs> I think, in some respects, or at least that's where I'm landing. Um, tell me a little bit about Gary Hagen and, and, and how he uh, maybe has inspired you and, and, and how he's built this organization. But I think more importantly, I'm, I want to talk about his book, The Locust Effect, which uh, has recently been published uh, and getting quite a bit of attention, um, uh, subtitled Why the End of Poverty requires the end of violence. Uh, Bill Clinton says, quote, a compelling reminder that if we are to create a 21st century of shared prosperity, there you go, shared mm. prosperity, we cannot turn a blind eye to the violence that threatens our common humanity, close quote. It's a wonderful quote. Um, no matter what side of the fence you, you sit on, I think you, you, would, you would have to agree with that. So, yeah, a couple questions there, Ed, but, but tossing out the locust. And, and then maybe, maybe tell us what the heck the locust effect actually is. Yeah, well, about, about Gary first. Gary is the CEO and founder of International Justice Mission, this global partnership that I talked about earlier. And uh, he's a Harvard and University of Chicago trained lawyer, extremely brilliant man. I highly respect Gary uh, for his, his, his intellect and his vision and his leadership skills. Uh, I think the, the, the most uh, formative experience of, of Gary's that really compelled him to, to do the work that he's done to build the organization that IGEM is today was an experience that he had in Rwanda in 1994 when he was uh, seconded by the U.S. Department of Justice to lead a forensic uh, investigation on behalf of the U.N. into the genocide in Rwanda. And, right. Uh, there he was in a little church in, in Rwanda that I also have visited, uh, sifting through the human remains um, and had what I, you know, I call a, a crisis of faith, mm. uh, calling out to 
to to God, asking God, where were you when all of this took place? And pretty, uh, just Ed, I've, I've, I've done some work on, uh, in Rwanda and actually visited the same church, so I know yeah. whereof you speak, and, the, and that, yeah, that whole... Church in Adorama. Yes. And, uh, um, and, I mean, you cannot visit that church without your emotions being uh, torn apart. It's uh, such a, a gripping, and even today, uh, so many years later, it's such a... Uh, a graphic uh, memorial to the, mm-hmm. the, the devastation that took place at that point in Rwanda's history. But, but the answer that 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 Gary heard back was more or less these words: "And where, you know, where was my church?" Um, mm-hmm. And 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 that's not about you know what did the you know the Roman Catholic Church do? Where you know where was the church and, and other churches, evangelical churches? Where where were they when all that took place? But in 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 the face of ongoing violence and injustice, uh, Gary's sense was that uh, that Christians, followers of God, um, and people of goodwill had a responsibility to intervene uh, in situations like that to the extent of their ability. And it goes back again to this this matter of personal responsibility, mm-hmm. uh, answering the question that. Um, that Jesus answered with the parable of the Good Samaritan, who who is my neighbor? And so that that led to the creation of the organization International Justice Mission, and 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 over time, the the focus of the International Justice Mission has has uh, coalesced around this central theme of uh, strengthening law enforcement mm. systems for the sake of the protection of the poor. Uh, so and a realization that the end of poverty requires the end of violence against right. the poor, and uh, we, you know we we're aware of ongoing situations of mass conflict, like the the horrendous situation in in Syria today and in other places in the world. But even beyond that, there is. Uh, the locust effect, the book The Locust Effect, sets forth the argument that there is a massive hidden plague of everyday violence that is destroying the lives of poor people throughout the developing world. And it's, it, it's hidden because it is as much a part of poverty as hunger, illness, or lack of access to education, but it's much harder to see. And it's everyday violence. It's, it's expressed in criminal acts like rape and sex trafficking, forced labor, slavery, police brutality, so much so that that many of the much-needed expressions of of development assistance that are provided to the poor in the world lack in effectiveness because the, because violence, this, this plague of everyday violence, pre- prevents the poor from taking full advantage of those other forms of assistance. So to, to, to use an example that's far too real, uh, a school can be, and uh, schools are being built, and schools need to be built in countries like Afghanistan. But if young girls fear that they will be raped en route to school in the morning, they won't leave home. Right. And so this, this very real threat of everyday violence prevents children uh, and adults from taking advantage of of other forms of assistance that are provided to them. So it, this everyday violence blocks the road out of poverty. It undermines the help is world the world is trying to do. So so would Gary 
how I guess how how would Gary define violence? How would you define violence? I mean, I, I think I and my listeners probably know what have, have been, and many of us have probably, you know, have succumbed to some of that along the way. Are we talking about emotional? Is it spiritual? I mean, are we talking about abuse? What or or, or is it just the threat of it? Is violent? Is a is a violent act in it in and of itself? Because he he talks about um, what he calls de facto lawlessness in in mm-hmm. the book. And, and I just wonder, is that almost, a, you know, living in an ethos of, of just wondering when, you know? But that, I think that's certainly part of the, part of the reality, but that, that ethos of wondering when is, is created by the, the very real uh, factual presence of, of criminal violence. And so for the, for the sake of our discussion, I would, I would define violence as, as criminal acts of violence focused uh, primarily on on the poor of this world, and so I, I've named off some some criminal acts of violence already: rape, uh, sex trafficking, forced labor, slavery, uh, police abuse of power, theft of land, of uh, property from from the poor, and all of these are expressions of criminal violence that IGM is engaged in addressing in partnership with with local authorities. Is, I mean, when you read the book, I mean, it's not until near the end of the book that you start to see, in fact, I think he's, um, he has a, a, a chapter at the end of the book, um, Demonstration Projects of Hope. He, he actually talks about spe- specific examples of things that are, that are happening, you know, that, 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 that are showing good signs. I mean, one of, and one of the other things I really love, uh, and I'll see if I can find the quote somewhere, but he basically says pretty much every society has suffered from this at one time or another. And so that in itself is a reason to hope. And even to your point earlier, the laws are good. It's just they're not being enforced. So it seems when you when you read the book, when you when you start to th- reflect on this, this is just such a massive, overwhelming problem. How, how can we even deal with hunger if, if this isn't being attended to? Or, or should we even bother with that while this remains unattended? You were breaking up a little bit, David. Oh, you, you might want to. Um... Yeah. So, so I guess, I guess what, what, I guess what the question really is is, it seems like a massive, overwhelming problem. Um, you know, Gary ends the book with uh, a chapter about you know actual projects of hope around the world, specific examples where things are getting better, where there are good reasons to believe that th- change change is coming. Um, it seems like it's almost too big of, a, of an issue to, to take on f- for the individual, other than, I guess, say, writing a check. I, I think uh, in terms of, of addressing these, these uh, countrywide systemic uh, problems of injustice, I, I don't think it is an individual venture, uh, but it certainly is not insurmountable. I, I don't think we've really given it our best uh, efforts yet to address the problem of everyday violence. Uh, Gary, Gary talks about the analysis that he's done in, in, in the book, The Locus Effect, he talks about it, and uh, it appears that less than 1% of international development aid coming from major global aid institutions like USAID and the World Bank is targeted to help improve justice systems, protect the poor from everyday violence. And, and mu- much of the aid that is labeled as um, aid for the strengthening of justice systems is actually focused on uh, 
preventing um, terrorism and and countering drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe that the world has seen yet the the potential effects uh, and effectiveness of investing in strengthening law enforcement systems. But we do have some great uh, early success stories that we can report. One uh, comes from Cambodia, and I know you care very deeply about the country of Cambodia. We do indeed. But in the early 2000s, uh, research reported by the Cambodian government estimated the prevalence of minors being exploited in the commercial sex industry was as high as 30% in the city of Phnom Penh. Our uh, iGEMS 2015 prevalence study found that the prevalence of minors in the commercial sex trade in the three largest commercial sex markets in the country, Phnom Penh, Siem Reap, and Sihanoukville, had dropped to 2.2% from perhaps as high as 30% wow. in the early 2000s, with minors 15 years and younger making up less than 0.1% of the sex industry. So this represents a 73% reduction in the presence of minors in just three years since we conducted a previous prevalence study in 2012. And um, so we, you know, we're very encouraged by, by what we've seen in Cambodia. It's certainly not anything that iGEM can take sole credit for. We've worked uh, as a partnership, as a member of a partnership of organizations uh, focusing on the issue of sex trafficking of minors. And um, Someone like uh, Helen Sworn, who's founder and international director of the Chab Dai Coalition in, in uh, Cambodia, says that for many years this felt like a long, dark tunnel. Right. Uh, but now she sees police and the government standing up and saying that sex trafficking is not acceptable. And she goes on to say that this brings her hope that not just on this particular issue, uh, but on other issues on other, as well, there's hope issues. for Cambodia. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that Cambodia and other countries who have battled similar issues don't still have a long way to go. But what we, the transformation that we've seen in Cambodia in the last 15 years, uh, I think, is a demonstration to those uh, yeah, it's from, from, observing iGEM's work that justice for the poor is possible. Remark remarkable statistics. So, sadly, we're going to have to wrap up the conversation here shortly, Ed, but, but um, I want to ask a question about corruption. So, mm -hmm. so to me, corruption is sort of an act of violence in a sense, because if yes, you're constantly is. feeling as if, what's the point? In fact, I think uh, Gary quotes a, a poverty expert that basically said it's just, it's become the expected norm, right, mm -hmm. in some countries around the world. We have corruption here. I mean, yes. we do. You, you can't get away from it. You see it almost every day in one way, shape, or form. But it doesn't seem to have the same life and death sort of implications. So I guess my question is, if personal security, as Gary says, is sort of the, this is what we need in, in, in the global south in order to move forward, in order to attend to things like poverty and extreme poverty and, 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 and hunger and malnutrition and so on, how do you do that when you're not governments around the world aren't even paying their police force enough to live. And so it almost seems to me like corruption is just the only way, in a sense. So if, if, if I can make a little bit of extra money, well, I'm going to charge you to do that because i got to feed my family. Does that make sense? It, it certainly does. And, and corruption is endemic, but it's not inevitable. And it, it's, almost, it's almost an active uh, statement of faith on the part of IJM to believe that in every context, no matter how 
desperate it seems, we will find, uh, eventually, we will find men and women of goodwill Mm. who are prepared to do the right thing in spite of the opportunity to gain personally through participating in bribery and graft and, and corruption. And it's taken it's taken years in some cases, but we've turned we've seen entire police departments in certain communities turned around based on our commitment to be persistent and relentless and fearless in our pursuit of those individuals in positions of influence and power who pr- are prepared to do the right thing when they are presented with with the challenge. And um, so we, and, and Gary mentions this in the book as well, that there's, there's something uh, that's, that's uh, like a rule of thumb for us. It's a 15-70-15 rule, which says that in any given context, uh, there are 15% of the people who get out of the bed in the morning, and they are inclined to do the wrong thing. Uh, there's another 15% who are by nature inclined to do the right thing, and the other 70% are waiting to see which way the wind is blowing. <laughs> right. And we, you know, we have been, through our relentless pursuit of those 15% who are inclined to do the right thing, we've been able to turn police departments around so that previously they blocked every effort that we made to pursue justice on behalf of the poor, and now they have become our champions. And they, are, and they are leading the charge. They are initiating investigations themselves. And in the course of, in the course of five, six years, we've seen a, a total transformation in the attitude of, of, of a police department. But it began with, this, uh, began with our relentlessness, and it began with a dogged pursuit at, at various levels of individuals who are prepared to do the right thing on behalf of the poor. And so... I, it takes me back to IGM's vision statement, which states that we are committed to rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. Mm. And I'm particularly inspired by the last aspect of that statement because I think it speaks to the despair that Christians and, and others often feel in the face of situations in the world. We think, how can we possibly turn around yes. The situation in South Sudan. How can Afghanistan uh, ever be uh, rehabilitated? And what is there any hope for Syria? And I don't have the specific answer for any of those situations. But but I think we we do need to approach uh, those situations and others like them with with this uh, with that attitude of believing that justice for the poor is possible. Well, I think the simple. I mean, possible. I think yeah, absolutely. for our world is possible. Absolutely. No, I totally appreciate your sense of of not only responsibility and passion and commitment to the other and to the neighbor and so on, but this idea that that the splashing ripple effect is possible, that it, it that it's happening either way, and the question is which way are you going to which which fifteen percent are you, uh, almost in in a sense. Can I can I just we're going to have to wrap it up here, but I want to read a quote. Um, uh, near the end of, of the book, quote, uh, Gary says, we have also stumbled upon a surprising hope. First, from history, we have encountered the unexpected story that just about every criminal justice system that can now be relied upon to work reasonably yes. well was once utterly corrupt, abusive, mm. and dysfunctional, close quote. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, <laughs> how can you not be hopeful, you know, uh, in, in some respects, when, 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 when you know that, when you say, well, yes, it's a bit of a mess, folks, but that doesn't mean you just roll over and go back to sleep. 
That's right. And and you know my my understanding of biblical justice, and as we've mentioned already, I'm a, I'm a person of faith. I I you know, follow uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ to the best of my ability. Um, I I take guidance from the Judeo-Christian scriptures. Um, my understanding of justice is that it's a sim- I can simplify it with these words. It's, it's about doing the right thing in public. Mm. And too often, I think, uh, faith and religion and ethics have been turned into matters of private morality. Mm. Uh, and private morality is important. I think we ought to care about what, you know, what I do in secret as well. But, but our world is, it will be changed as more and more of us determine to do the mm. right thing in public. And it's accepting the responsibility that we've spoken about earlier to, to my neighbors, the people that I share this world with. And I think it's that you know that it's that attitude that will, you know, will result in the transformation of our communities, that result in the transformation of our justice systems, um, and will make it impossible for me to be silent when I see corruption and injustice uh, in my local community as well as in the global world that that uh, that I am a part of as well. Ed Wilson is the executive director of the International Justice Mission here in Canada. Their website is ijm.ca. Check them out online. Ed, thanks a lot for your time. I mean, talk about scratching the surface. I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat today. I hope we can do a part two down the road. And um, um, again, I really appreciate your time and your insights and your passion. Well, thanks so much for um, setting up this conversation today. Appreciate it a lot. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.